Philippians chapter 1. Kind of an, an odd season for me right now when it comes to sermon prep because I'm still trying to finish up our Leadership Matters book and looking forward to getting back to an exposition of the Gospel of John. Uh, in the meantime, we kind of have been dealing with a little bit of, I mean, there's been a theme, but a little bit of randomness here with some uh, other messages as we're in between those two series, the leadership series and the Gospel of John. So keep me in prayer as it comes uh, when it comes to preparation and uh, being able to finish some of these projects. And uh, But that being said, as we preach some other things, my desire is to share with you from the Word of God things that are helpful to our church for this current season of our growth together as believers, and I hope that this will be a blessing and a help to you in Philippians chapter 1. We're going to read the whole chapter. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Have you detected a theme yet here? Paul's heart, Paul's affection, yearning for these individuals. And is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. And now we come to our text for this morning. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, 
and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of your destruction, of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. The, this is a wonderful letter written from Paul to the believers in Philippi. It's a very tender uh, letter. You can uh, hear Paul's heart for this church. The Philippian church had an incredible privilege. They were growing under the direct personal spiritual care of the Apostle Paul. And so Paul is an encouragement to this church. He uh, offers protection to the church and correction to the church because he loves this church. Paul was, in all respects, to these believers, a spiritual father. And you can really hear that coming out in this letter. But, like all earthly fathers, there's going to come a time in Paul's relationship to the Philippian church that he's not going to be there for them. And so he speaks of that conflict in verses 21 through 26. He's saying, I'm stuck between these two desires. On one hand, I know that if my imprisonment results in my execution and I go to be with Christ, that's far better. However, to continue on and to minister is better for you. And I'm stuck between those two things. And he says, but I have some confidence that I'm going to continue so that I can minister to you. But what's interesting about this passage is as Paul considers the fact that he's absent from the Philippians, and he may continue to be absent from the Philippians, he's got to leave them with some instruction. And so we see that in verse 27. He says, now whether I'm with you or whether I am away from you, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And so this becomes very practical for us this morning. And that's really the title of the message, A Life Worthy of the Gospel. Paul's saying, whether I'm there to give you direct instruction or not, this is your mandate. This is your commission. Live in a way that's worthy of the gospel of Christ. And so he says, so that, in verse 27, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit and with one mind, striving side by side for the truth of the gospel. And so this morning, we just want a a word of encouragement to live a life worthy of the gospel. That's it. And we're going to follow through Paul's reasoning as he describes just what that life is. That's our duty. Live a life which properly reflects the nature of the gospel. The Philippians and our day-to-day lives are to be living illustrations of the reality of the effectiveness of the gospel. And conversely, you can say, so then there must also be a lifestyle that's not worthy of the gospel. In fact, the good news of Christ, the good news of the gospel is good news of transformation, right? Transformation. And that's why when somebody's going to be baptized or even when somebody joins the church, we ask, uh, share your testimony. Explain to us what your life was like before you heard the gospel, how you came to Christ, and then what your life has been like since you've come to Christ. The expectation is that there's been a change because the gospel changes individuals. Through the new covenant, God puts the Holy Spirit inside of us. He writes his law upon our hearts. He changes us. So Paul states that men and women who have been affected by the gospel uh, then go on to live lives that are fundamentally transformed so that their entire manner of life becomes one which reflects the power and reality of the gospel. And so that's the question for all of us this morning. How is that seen in your life and my life? Uh, Can it be said that since our conversion, we are now living a life which could be described as worthy of the gospel? 
This is not the only place Paul uses this phrase. He writes to the Ephesians as well and says in Ephesians 4.1, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And then he describes it with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So if you're wondering at this point, well, what is it to live a life worthy of the gospel? Well, there's a good start. He wrote to the Colossians as well, Colossians chapter 1, verse 9. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And there he says, I want you to gain knowledge, spiritual wisdom, understanding, not just to fill up your mind, but so as to walk, live in a manner worthy of the Lord fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. One more. To the Thessalonians, he writes in chapter 4, verse 1, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you're doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. And then he gets real practical again. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to possess his body, control his body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger and all these things as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. The point is this, Paul writes in his letters uh, over and over again, listen, you have been called through the gospel. Now live out the gospel. Live a life that's worthy of that calling. Live a life that's worthy of the gospel. And so from those passages, we learn that a lifestyle worthy of our calling, worthy of the Lord, a lifestyle which pleases God, affects our attitude towards ourselves. Paul says, be humble, humility. It affects our attitude towards others. We read that we're to be gentle, patient, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain unity. It affects our attitude towards our own purpose. He says, I want you to go on bearing fruits, increasing in the knowledge of God. It even changes our attitude towards our own bodies. He says, possess or abstain from sexual immorality, control your own passions, pursue holiness. Changes our attitude towards God because he says we are to seek to please him. And so the gospel is transformative. An individual who claims to be a believer, but there's no tangible evidence in their life, brings questions, doesn't it? So Paul says, you've been saved by the gospel, and that internal change and transformation will be and ought to be lived out. A man affected by the gospel of Christ has seen his entire life transformed. His view of God and others and himself has changed, fundamentally alters his attitudes and his affections, and also his behavior. As Paul said to the Corinthians, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Jerry Bridges said this, This transformation into the image of Jesus is much more than a change of outward conduct. Rather, it is a deep, penetrating work of the Holy Spirit in the very core of our being, what the Bible calls the heart, the center of our intellect, affections, and will. It is what is sometimes called a change from the inside out. And remember that as we go on, because if we're going to talk about how the gospel changes us, practically... We want to avoid that ditch over there called legalism, right? 
This is an internal change wrought by the Holy Spirit, which manifests itself on the outside. Paul's expectation for the Philippians and for us is that we would live in a way which properly displays a life affected by the transforming work of the gospel of Christ. And he says, whether I'm with you or not, anything short of this would be a life unworthy of the gospel and displeasing to God. And so, although the New Testament has much to say about a life lived worthy of our calling, the Apostle Paul focuses mainly on about three aspects of a worthy life. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to see that believers who are living a life worthy of the gospel are called, number one, to stand together. Number two, to strive together. And number three, to suffer together. Look at verse 27, where we're going to see Paul encourage, if you're going to live a life, uh, a manner of life worthy of the gospel, you've got to stand together. In verse 27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or an absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. The city of Philippi was the scene of one of the most significant battles in Roman history. In 42 BC, Antony and Octavian defeated Brutus and Cassius in a battle which would see the Roman Republic become the Roman Empire. Following that conflict, many army veterans settled in Philippi. The city itself was given status as a Roman colony. At this time of Paul's writing, the culture within Philippi had become thoroughly Roman, a fact that the Philippians were very, very proud of. You see that in Acts chapter 16. The presence of military men would have been a daily reality. And you see that in Paul's writing here. In encouraging the Philippians to walk worthy of the gospel, Paul uses interesting terms. Terms which speak of citizenship and soldiering. He says, let your manner of life. The manner of life is, literally means behave as citizens. And he says, stand firm. Well, that's a military metaphor. What Paul's doing here is he's telling the Philippians, uh, I want to hear that you're standing firm in one spirit. And by saying so, he's encouraging them to present a united, unwavering front. One which would neither be broken by inward disunity or frightened by outward opposition. This isn't the only place that Paul instructs churches to stand firm. We glean from other letters of Paul just what that standing firm entails. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul says, But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through the gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, so then, brothers, stand firm. What does it look like to stand firm? And hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our fathers. Well, that's helpful. As a church, if we say, okay, we want to live a life worthy of the gospel, according to Paul, that means we have to stand firm in one spirit, one mind. What does that look like? Well, according to Paul to the Thessalonians, it means you got to hold firm to the traditions that have been taught. What do we mean by traditions? Traditions of some church hierarchy, traditions handed down from us, you know, by a pope. No, not at all. The traditions here are the traditions of the apostles. This is the apostolic teaching. And so hold firm, stand firm in what you have been taught. This is that determination that we as a body together, I mean, we, we take this whole spiritual life thing seriously, right? I mean, we are determined together to not 
succumb to temptation to alter or deviate from apostolic teaching. Similarly, Paul encouraged the Galatians to stay faithful to the gospel. Galatians chapter 5, he says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. And that had to do with false teaching, going back to legalism, going back to the works of the law. And so as a church, as we seek to live a manner of life worthy of the gospel, we determine together with, as a united front with unity to say, we're going to stand firm on the apostolic doctrine. Just as it would be disastrous for a soldier to break ranks and to kind of do his own thing, so too it would be disastrous for us or for the Philippians to become disunified when it came to doctrines of the faith. It's interesting, I had a discussion just this morning with an individual. We were talking about eschatology, talking about uh, the view of uh, end times. And uh, part of that conversation, we realized that in the church, there are various opinions when it comes to uh, the area of eschatology. So what do we do about that? Do we fight over it? We have different factions trying to prove their point, trying to convince others. Already recognize there are some things that we can agree to disagree that may not be major doctrines of the faith. Uh, we look at those things and say, you know what's paramount here? To live a manner of life worthy of the gospel is unity. Unity. So that we can present a united front. On the other hand, there's those doctrines of the faith that we say these things must be believed. These things cannot be compromised. And this is what Paul is hitting on here. He said to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 16, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. And so we're reminded that uh, as much as we talk about community, we're going to have barbecue, we're going to have a dinner, we're going to have some social events and so on. We're reminded that the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles, that we must take seriously theology and doctrine, and that we create a united front standing for those things. That's part of what it means to live a life worthy of the gospel. This is a life of conviction and determination. This is a settled conviction regarding what we believe and a determined commitment to safeguard that truth. This is, as Paul says, this is not something that we do as individuals. This is something we do as a community. He says in verse 27 that we're to stand firm in one spirit. Just as soldiers would present a united front holding the line against oncoming attacks, so the church engages the world settled in what it believes without dissension in its ranks. And so we encourage, hey, read the Bible. Read, study, know what you believe. Listen to the preaching and then go home and check it out to see whether or not it's biblical or not. Get in the Word. This type of unity is not based upon popular opinion, but upon the truth of God's Word. It's not maintained simply through human spirit, uh, human effort, but through the work of the Spirit of God. So Paul would tell the Ephesians, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Then he says this, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And so, unity is valuable. Unity is to be treasured, is to be coveted, and we work together to strive for that unity, especially in the area of uh, standing firm in the apostolic doctrine. So through the scriptures, we know what we should believe through the Holy Spirit of God. And through that, we can maintain a harmony around those truths. God has provided everything that we need for such a unity. And so he holds us accountable to living a life which reflects it. And that's what we call a wife. Uh, a wife. It's wonderful to have a wife worthy of the gospel as well, but a life worthy of the gospel. 
There are some people who claim to be believers, but they don't seem to have any convictions at all. In fact, it's, if asked, probably couldn't really explain the gospel, couldn't really explain apostolic doctrine at all. When people like that have their faith challenged, they're likely to doubt, even possibly defect. They're likely to live in a manner worthy, unworthy of the gospel of Christ. So it's encouraging to see those young adults getting together, crossroads. And they're going to study theology. They're going to study the Word of God together. Wonderful age, wonderful stage of life to, to have that conviction, to be able to stand against any attacks against the truth. So what are you going to do when the Jehovah's Witness knocks on your door? What are you going to do when the Mormon shows up with his backpack on, knocking on your door? Your faith going to withstand those attacks? Your faith going to withstand those challenges? Are you so familiar with the truth that you can detect error? If not, what can you do to strengthen your faith? What can you do to stand firm? What can you do to know more of the Word? Paul adds to his description of the worthy life by encouraging the Philippians not only to stand together, but look in verse 27. He adds to that, not only ought you to stand together, but you ought to strive together. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So it's not enough to stand firm. We're not left here in this life simply to endure, simply hang on until Christ returns. But we've been left with a mission. We've been left with a mandate. We've been left with a commission. Matthew 28. Jesus came and said to them, now this is post-resurrection. He says, having accomplished salvation through his sacrificial death on the cross, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He now has all authority. There are no competing authorities that, uh, that he has not overcome. He says, all authority has been given to me on heaven and, in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore. Go with the authority that I have been granted and do what? Make disciples of all nations. All people groups. Not just the Jews. All people groups. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So what do we do as a church? What is our purpose? What is our mandate? What are we striving together to do? Well, I mean, we get our own house in order. We make sure we maintain unity around the apostolic doctrine, but getting our own house in order so that we can launch and then go influence the culture through the gospel. Go and make disciples, not just preaching the gospel, but then teaching, discipling, right? One of the things that I'm working on that I hope you guys will participate in is we have membership matters. I'm just on the threshold of finishing Leadership Matters to help train up future elders. But I'm also six lessons into a book called Growth Matters. And the idea of Growth Matters is that when somebody receives Christ as their Savior and Lord, becomes a new disciple, uh, that somebody else who's an established Christian could sit with them and go through these 10 lessons uh, to help them in their discipleship. Just the basics how salvation works, uh, what it means that God is now your Heavenly Father, what prayer is, and so on. What is that? Well, that's part of the Great Commission. The Great Commission is not just preach the gospel. The Great Commission is then teaching them to observe all things that Christ commanded. And so that's one way that we can all participate together, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, fulfilling the Great Commission. The church has a responsibility while it awaits the return of Christ. Again, spread the gospel throughout the world. That seems somewhat uh, simplistic, doesn't it? That's how we ended. Was it last week's sermon or the sermon the week before? Or we said, how then do we engage a hostile culture? 
And some of you might have thought it was a little anticlimactic because you're like, okay, we're going to go to battle. And I said, preach the gospel. That's how you do it. Preach the gospel. Spurgeon said this. He said, as we consider how to meet the evils of the age, he says, I have only one remedy. I have only one remedy to prescribe, and that is that we do preach the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In all its length and breadth of doctrine, precepts, spirit, example, and power, we have only to preach the living gospel and the whole of it to meet the whole of the evils of the times. The gospel, if it were fully received through the whole earth, would purge away all slavery, all war, put down all drunkenness and all social ills. In fact, you cannot conceive a moral curse which it would not remove, and even physical evils, since many of them arise incidentally from sin, be greatly mitigated and some of them forever abolished. You say, what about social justice and so on? Well, yeah, we'll preach the gospel. Look up our archive of sermons and you'll find one that says, How Jesus Destroys Slavery. Preach the gospel. That's our mandate. That's our commission. Romans chapter 10, verse 13. Paul says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in, in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. And so this is our calling. Are you a Calvinist this morning? That's a word I don't usually say from the pulpit. We can bleep it out later if we want to. Are you a Calvinist? Well, I help if you, if you call yourself a Calvinist, you also understand the mandate for you to preach the gospel, right? If God is sovereign in salvation, drawing men and women to himself, which I believe he is, that does not mean that we are not diligent in sharing the gospel with others because that is the power of God unto salvation. And so it's the preaching of the gospel that then penetrates the hearts of those whom the Father would bring to Christ, and that's how men and women come to uh, salvation. We preach the gospel. Paul says they got to hear, and if they're going to hear, somebody's got to preach, and if they're going to preach, they got to be sent. And with all that, I actually want to commend Calvary Baptist Church. I want to commend all of you because generally a Sunday doesn't go by that you don't bring somebody to the service. Somebody who's not yet a Christian, friends, relatives, coworkers, uh, fellow students, whoever it may be, uh, and that is the sign of a healthy church. That people growing in the faith, uh, they have a testimony that says my life has been transformed. That then influences others, so then others are saying, yes, I do want to go and see what all this is about because I've seen your life. And so I just want to commend you all for that. You might ask, well, why don't we have a formal evangelism program? Well, that's all fine and good, but you know what I'm more concerned about? It's just that organic evangelism that comes through your own spiritual growth where you're reaching out to people within your sphere of influence, and you all are doing that, right? And uh, that's the evidence, I think, of a healthy church with growing individuals. But that's our mandate. God's plan for the spread of the faith is that his people would go out and confront the world with the gospel message. He expects his church to be engaged in faithful, unified labor, striving together to bring the good news of salvation to a hostile culture. That includes also contending for the faith. We won't get into it, but Jude chapter 3, Jude uh, verse 3 and 4, deals with that essential uh, calling also not only to preach the gospel, to defend the gospel. So Paul says, you need to stand together, you need to strive together for the faith of the gospel. That's a life worthy of the gospel. But then he continues. 
he's painted a picture of a church body which is unified in what it believes, committed to standing firm, which is working side by side to proclaim and defend the gospel, but then he offers a logical addition. And this one's not so encouraging. Because if the Philippians are going to be unified and standing together and striving together, there's something that naturally happens when you do that in the midst of a hostile culture. And that is you're going to suffer together. You're going to suffer together. Look in verse 28. He says, I want you to strive side by side for the faith of the gospel and not be frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. He's saying, I want you to do all this, and as you do it, opposition will come. Opposition will come. When you preach the gospel, you know what you're doing? You're lobbing warfare into that spiritual war that we've been talking about the last couple of weeks. And when you do that, you should expect opposition. Standing firm for the gospel, uh, having that united front, yeah, you're going to face opposition. So Paul says, I don't want you to be frightened. If the church were to be confident in what it believed, with a determination not to waver, coupled with a real a zeal for evangelism, uh, with the ability to defend all of that against attackers, and to do so alongside one another in unity, he's saying, then you won't have much susceptibility to fear. The word used here for frightened in verse 28 has the idea of like coming along some horses and like making a loud noise and those horses just scattering. That's the idea. What he's saying is with a unified defense and capable offense, he said, you're not going to be easily frightened. You're not going to be easily shaken. This is the power of a unified church. This is one of the reasons we emphasize community. Because tomorrow you're going to go to work. Tomorrow you're going to go to school. Tomorrow you're going to interact with your unbelieving family. Tomorrow you're going to be scrolling. And you're going to see hostility. You're going to see opposition. And if you're not involved in the community of the church, you're going to feel alone. When you feel alone, you're going to feel weak. You're going to be susceptible. And Paul is saying the power of a church that has one spirit and is striving side by side is that you won't be frightened. You know you got a whole family, right? A fellow believers that, are, that encourages you uh, to stand firm. The power of the unified church that is striving together for the gospel. And so Paul closes out chapter 1 in this passage on living the worthy life by offering the Philippians some words of encouragement regarding suffering. And really we could call it the blessings of suffering. The blessings of suffering. We might not be facing this on a large-scale persecution type thing against the church in the West yet. It's coming, but not... Yet, that does not mean, however, that you and I on an individual basis don't sometimes suffer the hostility, animosity, and rejection of others in our daily life. And so these are good reminders. So Paul begins to speak about the blessings of suffering. And just as a reminder, Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. As difficult as suffering may be, it does come with some unmistakable blessings. We're going to just end with three of those. First of all, Paul says in verse 28, they didn't want this church to be frightened in anything by their opponents. He says, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. Well, it's kind of an odd way to word things, perhaps. 
Paul's telling the Philippians that the, the fact that they are being attacked or persecuted for their faith is a clear sign that their opponents are going to face destruction. The point here is not that the opponents are going to face destruction because they're persecuting the church, though that may be true, but that's not what he's saying here. But what he's saying is that by opposing Christ, those who are persecuting the church are really making plain their rebellion against God. They're evidencing the fact that they are rebels against God. Their opposition to Christ and his work on earth reveals the true nature of the depraved hearts. That's the idea. Consequently, the fact that they'll one day face the judgment of God. So the church is unified, striving side by side, preaching the gospel. Uh, There's opposition. The culture is hostile towards the church. What is the culture doing? They're simply evidencing the fact that they are of those who will one day face destruction. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 4 says, Therefore we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions, Paul says to the Thessalonians, and in the afflictions that you are enduring. He says, This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. By the way, isn't that a very interesting way to talk about the gospel? Those who do not obey the gospel? Well, that's because the gospel includes the idea of repentance. It includes the idea of submitting to Christ as Lord. It says, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. Paul's message to the Philippians, Paul's message to the Thessalonians is the same. When the world persecutes genuine believers, they're revealing the true nature of the depraved hearts. Their hatred towards Christ, their hatred towards Christians is a very clear sign that they are rebels against God and will one day face judgment. That's the idea. So the Philippians, and I can say and us, need to understand that although we may feel sometimes that we are helpless victims of a hateful world, we are and they were actually the ones who were condemning their opponents through their faithfulness to Christ and their commitment to live a manner of life worthy of the gospel, even while suffering, they were, in fact, exposing their persecutors as unrepentant rebels against God. They are making it clear that God would be perfectly justified in one day pouring out his unmitigated judgment upon them. Now, that should encourage us. That should encourage us to maintain a right attitude when difficulty comes, right? when persecution comes, when opposition comes. That should keep us from wanting to respond in kind. As Jared talked about this morning in the equip class, Christ, who when he was reviled, did not revile again. But he did what? He entrusted himself to the Father, to the one who judges justly. Understanding that uh, there will be a, a, a judgment that's coming where God will set all things right, that means that we can respond to opposition in this life with the right attitude. We can endure difficulties with grace while trusting that God will execute justice, however and whenever he deems appropriate. What, is, what are the signs that somebody's not holding that attitude? Are you bitter towards the culture? Are you bitter towards the world all around you? Do you get angry as you read headlines? 
you begin to feel hatred towards those who are heavily influencing the culture in an anti-God manner. Well, that's an indication that perhaps you don't quite understand the coming judgment uh, that God has promised is going to happen. God's going to judge in righteousness, and so because of that, uh, what? We can endure hostility in this life. So after telling the Philippians that their faithfulness to in living a life worthy of the gospel would condemn their opponents, he then mentions another blessing of suffering. Number one, your opponents are condemned when you suffer. Number two, he says that when you suffer, your faith is authenticated. Look in verse 28 and 29 again. Don't be frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of, your, of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Through suffering and persecution, multiple things become clear. On one hand, it exposes persecutors as rebels against God. On the other hand, it reveals who the true children of God are. It reveals who true followers of Christ are. By remaining faithful in the midst of persecution, that's wonderful evidence of genuine salvation. John chapter 15, Jesus says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Now, what's the assumption here? The assumption is there's hostility and rejection from the culture for your Christ-like testimony. If you're facing opposition because you're living like Christ, then you can say, well, it's simply hating me because it sees Christ in me. There's a whole lot of those who claim the name of Christ who are being hated because, frankly, they're jerks. They respond to the culture in a way that is pugnacious, argumentative, quarrelsome. That's not what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, to the degree that you live like me, you will then be treated like me. And so, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you're of the world, then the world would love its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. So this is the evidence of godlessness. This is the evidence of rebellion against the Father. Jesus says that if they would receive me, they'll receive you. But if they rejected me, they're going to reject you. So expect it, right? As much as we seek to live a quiet and peaceable life, as much as we try to mind our own affairs and so on, just living a godly life in the midst of a wicked culture brings opposition. And you say, well, that sounds terrible, but you know what? Through it, your faith is authenticated. The world sometimes hates Christians because they represent and reflect Christ and his authority. When we suffer for his sake, it becomes evident that we belong to him. In Acts chapter 5, remember those disciples who were being persecuted, and the Bible says that they rejoiced because they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Christ. It's simply a matter of genuine salvation that those who follow Christ will suffer for his sake. So don't be surprised. But look at something very interesting in verse 29 of Philippians 1. He says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. What two things are granted to us there? It's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer. Those two things are joined together. The word for granted there is related to the word grace. 
the early believers saw suffering for Christ as a privilege given to them by the grace of God. It's been granted by God to us that we would actually suffer for Jesus' sake. Why? Because it served, again, as clear evidence that God counted them worthy to be identified with him. Paul goes so far as to say that suffering for Christ's sake is a gift of God's grace on par with the gift of faith. These things can't be separated. God's granted to you to believe. Well, guess what? He's also granted you to suffer for Christ's sake. So like the Philippians, when we endure the persecution of our opponents, we expose their rebellious hearts, we reveal the true nature of our faith, and enjoy the reality that God is active in giving us grace. It becomes clear that we possess a salvation in that from God, the text says. Well, lastly, consider next that when we live a life worthy of the gospel, even in the midst of suffering, our fellowship with godly believers is deepened. Our fellowship with godly believers is deepened. Look in verse 30. Verse 29, he says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Well, why would he mention that? What Paul is saying is that when you experience these things, when you are a unified church, standing firm for the apostolic doctrine, striving together for the faith of the gospel, side by side, fulfilling the Great Commission, when you do all of that, you're going to suffer, but take comfort. That you're just experiencing the same things I'm experiencing. You know where Paul was when he wrote this? He was in prison. He was in prison. Paul encourages the Philippians by reminding them that when they suffered for Christ's sake, they were, in fact, suffering the same way in which he suffered and the same way which in, in which other godly believers had suffered. So we not only identify with Christ himself when we suffer, but we identify with a long line of godly men and women. And this is the power of the church. This is the power of community, as we're going to see in the book of Hebrews in just a second. God has designed the faith to be lived out, and he desires one generation after the next to look to the examples of men and women before them who have also suffered for the faith. This is why it's probably a good idea to read some church history. As we mentioned earlier, verse 27, Paul uses a special word to describe the worthy life. He says, let your manner of life, and in doing so, he's saying, behave as citizens. That's the idea there. Behave as citizens. Citizens of where? Not citizens of Rome, but behave as citizens of heaven, as we're going to see in the book of Hebrews. But he's also using that term, again, to reflect a greater truth. The Bible says that we who are Christians, in chapter 3 of Philippians, that we as Christians have a citizenship which is in heaven. It says, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. What Paul wants this church to understand is that they were fellow citizens of a heavenly city, and as such, they should recognize they don't belong in this life. That's what we learned in Equip class today. We're sojourners, we're exiles, this is not our ultimate home. We are citizens of a heavenly city. So what Paul is saying to the Philippians is live as if you are citizens of that place, and don't live as if you are citizens of this place. James Montgomery Boyce said this, Paul knew how proud the Philippians were of their earthly citizenship. He knew that they allowed it to affect not only the laws of their city, but also their social customs and the daily conduct of their lives. How much more then were they to be proud of their citizenship in heaven? And so that means that as we live in this life, we say, you know what? We have a different culture. We have a different value system. We have different philosophies. We have different beliefs. We have uh, different uh, allegiances in that scene in how we live. Hebrews chapter 11 
we're going to end here in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4. After listing a series of examples of men and women who lived lives of faith, and guess what? They suffered. The writer of Hebrews cites Abraham, according to verse 9 and 10 of Hebrews 11. We're going to see how Abraham could manage to live a life worthy while walking through this world. Hebrews 11.9 says, By faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. He could manage to live through this life because he had his mind set upon uh, what? That city that the Lord had built. He's looking at eternity. According to verse 13, speaking of men and women of faith, it says, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having knowledge, acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Again, exactly what we learned in the equip class today. The attitude of the church in this world is that attitude of exiles. We don't belong here. This is not where our ultimate citizenship is. And so it should be no surprise that the way that we live and think is different from the culture all around us. According to verse 14 of Hebrews 11, for people who speak thus, so people who talk this way, make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. That's the mentality. Stand firm together uh, among the apostolic doctrine. Strive together with the gospel. Uh, seek to influence the culture with the preaching of Christ. Do all that together while maintaining unity, bearing persecution when it comes, knowing that we're being counted worthy of Christ. And we can do all of that because we realize it's not all about this life, but there's eternity that's coming. That's the idea. Hebrews 12, verse 1. Therefore... Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, he's saying, since we have a host of men and women who have gone on before us, who have lived lives of faith, looking forward to eternity, since that is the case, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. That sounds a lot like striving together, doesn't it, for the faith of the gospel. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, because he looked at what his sacrifice would accomplish, he could endure suffering. And so likewise, we look to eternity and say, therefore, I can endure persecution here. Despising the shame, and he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God, having endured the cross. And so that's how we respond. That's the encouragement we should take from seeing men and women who have lived lives of faith before us. But I would say this. It doesn't just have to be looking back to historic men and women of the faith that gives us that encouragement. We, we ought to be such a people that you can look to the person next to you and say, you know what? She's growing in the faith. Her life has changed. I see it. She's living a life manner, a, a, a manner of life worthy of the gospel. She's in the word. She's got a prayer life. She's trusting God. She's enduring suffering. And you take encouragement from that. Say, say, look to the other side and say, I've seen it in his life. He's changed. Christ is changing his life. He's fully devoted to his Lord. That's the encouragement we take from one another. And that's the power of community. And so that's why Paul could say, unity, strive side by side, stand firm together. Paul knew that the realization that the Philippians were engaged in the same conflict as they saw in him would be an encouragement. 
knowing that our faith can be tested and tried. That's why I say, read church history. Look into what the church is going through all over the globe, because that faith is the same as your faith. And though your faith may not be tested, their testimony shows you what your faith can endure. So to summarize, the life worthy of the gospel is a transformed life, which is lived with a conviction about what we believe. This conviction then overflows into a mutual striving for the faith of the gospel, which includes both sharing and defending the gospel. Then, the worthy life stands strong in the face of the persecution, which will inevitably come. You see, suffering for Christ is a work of God's grace, whereby rebels are exposed and our faith is authenticated. And then what? It rejoices in knowing that we're in good company, suffering alongside other men and women of the faith. So, has your life been transformed? Has your life been transformed? We seek to build a culture at Calvary Baptist Church which is firmly rooted in the Word of God. And so we fight against nominal Christianity. We fight against a culture of consumerism. What we're saying is, together we have been transformed by the gospel, so let's stand firm together. Let's strive side by side together. Let's live in unity with our fellow believers. Let's work together to advance the gospel. Let's handle suffering graciously. And so as we close, let's think about a few prayer points here. How might we apply this? Pray for wisdom to stand firm. Pray, Lord, help me to better understand your word, what I should believe. Help me to actually have some zeal. I worry about the believer that doesn't seem to have any zeal. Pray for some zeal, conviction about apostolic doctrine. Pray for a determination not to waver or compromise when you're challenged. Pray that you can be active in striving side by side. Look at your life and say, have I shared the gospel? I want to live the gospel so that my sharing of the gospel has credibility, but are you also sharing the faith with others? And then pray that you can have a healthy biblical understanding of suffering. Because as much as you might think you have it all together, when suffering comes, that's when it's likely that if you're actually immature in the faith, your faith is going to be shaken. So Lord, help me to understand the role of suffering in the Christian life. Help me to be strong and understand your purposes behind struggles so that I can lean upon my fellow believers when those times of testing come. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you'd help us to live a life, a manner of life worthy of the gospel. I thank you for Paul's encouragement written not just to individuals, but to a community of the church so that we can receive this together as a community. We can see this as a calling for us collectively. So help us to know what we believe. Help us to stand firm on it. Help us not to, not only to know what we believe, but also to contend for the truth. Help us also then not just to hunker down and to fill our minds with knowledge about what we ought to believe, but help us to turn outward to the culture and to share the gospel. As we said in the last couple of weeks, as much as we might look at the hostility of the culture, help us also recognize that the culture largely is captive, prisoners of their own sin, needing deliverance. And so we have that message. So out of love and compassion upon the culture, help us to share the gospel and help us to work together as a church to that end. Help us to maintain that unity. And then help us to have a biblical understanding of suffering. Those who may be feeling, experiencing difficulty, whether it be through hostile family members, workplace, former friends, whatever it may be, 
uh, help others who may not be experiencing those things to come alongside and to offer strength. Help us to weep with those who weep. Help us to bear one another's burdens. And uh, help us to understand that even if things get even more difficult in our culture and even more hostile, that this is not unusual for believers. Instead, it simply puts us in company with faithful men and women who have suffered for Christ's sake uh, in the past. So uh, encourage us that way. Help us uh, to live a life uh, worthy of the gospel. Uh, Help us be reminded of what the gospel is and uh, bless the church that way, Lord. Continue to build the community here, and we pray that it be increasingly pleasing to you. We thank you for all of this in Christ's name. Amen.